so it's traditional this time of year to uh, make resolutions for the upcoming year, uh, which many then will promptly forget and abandon. Uh, and while Americans certainly crave things and pleasures, uh, but let's face it, our, uh, our culture descended from a bunch of uh, uh, Christian zealots, immigrants, too puritanical for the countries of origin, and they brought with them a very uh, uh, holier-than-thou dogma of self-perfection, seeking a divine union with God. Uh, so, just turning on my recorder. There we go. So our self-help industry is huge. In 2021, we generated something like 11 or $12 billion. And every year it grows, that's in the US alone. It grows bigger and bigger and bigger with weight loss programs, physical trainers, personal coaches, self-help books, motivational speakers, holistic institutes, you name it. We are constantly being instilled with the idea that self-improvement is the spiritual goal. And at this time of year, we're supposed to resolve ourselves to becoming better people, more perfect. And yet, the Dharma, the Buddha's teaching, is not a self-improvement regime or protocol at all. In fact, enlisting the three types of craving or addictive thirst that causes suffering, the Buddha noted three. The third type of craving that caused suffering was craving, seeking self-improvement, new, better states of self. When I get a diploma, a career, a condo, a partner, children, uh, when I retire, when I have more financial resources, when I get to some place in the future, that's when I get to relax. And deeply built in, as the Buddha noted, this idea of self-improvement is this idea that right now I don't, I'm not allowed to be peaceful, happy, content. It's always something further down the line. It's not something that's available to me now. This whole idea, this culturally instilled notion of setting resolutions at times plays into this idea that to become fulfilled and content, we have to achieve, acquire. It's always something that is not available to us unconditionally. The urge for life to become, or our state of existence, to become better, more complete, is of course driven by, to a certain degree, our sense of vulnerability, our lack of security in the world. The Buddha noted, uh, the world is not a reliable place in the first noble truth. The neural processes of the brain are not set up in any way to reward us with a kind of 
lasting peace of mind or well-being as a result of self-improvement. Why? Why is that? Why, why is self-improvement, this whole idea, kind of, a, in many ways, a waste of time? Well, there was two great classic studies in contemporary psychology, one by uh, uh, Brickman and uh, Coates, that showed within a year of winning the lottery and achieving you know, financially, all of the goals that uh, individuals sought, lottery winners returned all the way back to their baseline happiness levels that preceded winning the lottery. When people got to a place where they were fully rewarded with material security, they returned back to the level of happiness that preceded winning the lottery. They didn't wind up any happier, any more content, any more fulfilled. Interestingly, most accident victims who wound up paralyzed also returned to their baseline levels of happiness before the accident. Now, to be sure, Baseline levels, according to Sanja Lubomorsky, who's one of the great positive psychologists, is not completely fixed, but it only varies slightly. In fact, most studies, and there's been many, many, many studies on self-reported happiness, fulfillment, contentment, and well-being, we only vary in the course of a lifetime roughly about 10%. And the people who do show more significant shifts are very, very often downwards due to a divorce, a death of a spouse, imprisonment, uh, or lasting unemployment that they don't adapt to. But the vast majority, fully over 90% of people, their happiness, contentment, fulfillment levels stay pretty constant to the degree that it's now theorized that fully 50% of our baseline happiness is genetic. The only behaviors that have been established to promote lasting positive changes to our sense of fulfillment in life, our contentment, our altruistic acts of kindness, and those altruistic acts of kindness can't be done in these studies with an eye towards self-improvement. They simply have to be done for their own sake. And then over time, people do show uh, improvement in their sense of well-being and happiness. But again, if their goal, paradoxically, is to become better, happier, more perfect, better human beings, then it doesn't work. It's only when people altruistically give or help others without any intention that it makes their life better, that actually they accrue significantly notable, clinically verifiable levels of uh, a boost in happiness and well-being. It turns out as a species, we are terrible at what's called affect forecasting or predicting how we'll feel in the future. We grossly, as Jonathan Haidt and uh, Martin Seligman note, uh, overestimate how much happiness 
will accrue by making changes to our life. Why? Well, another reason is that lasting happiness would require continuously ongoing rising levels of achievements. The moment we stopped and relaxed, paradoxically, the, our happiness levels would just return back to their original set point. Why? Because the neurons adapt and they just go back to their normal levels of secreting dopamine, serotonin, and so forth. So again, people do become happier, but it's not by intending to become better and intending to be to improve, intending to uh, achieve some state of perfection. It's a byproduct of uh, an entirely different kind of actions. So why do we, uh, and, and in fact, I would say there's a time in the future when the pandemic will be resolved, but even in that point, happiness will not be any easier. And I'm not talking about the fact that there will still be global warming, climate catastrophe, uh, you know, tensions between um, Russia, China, the US, NATO, and so, so on and forth, so forth. No, the Buddha said, it's the very nature of the mind. The first noble truth, life will always have old age, sickness, death, separation from the loved, being stuck with people we can't stand and not getting what we want. There's never going to be life without those events. You're never going to get to a place in your life where you are or I am free from old age, sickness, uh, the possibility of being separated from things and people we care about. It's just not physically, biologically possible. Therefore, it will never get any easier. So why do we keep striving as if it doesn't work? Well, from one perspective, it's just the nature of the way the brain is set up. You see, we have two hemispheres and the right hemisphere, which is not non-dominant, it's in the background, but it's a very wide background, vigilant awareness, constantly looking for threats and uh, our attachments. It's constantly on guard. It's uh, organized looks for, it's not, it doesn't care about tools or things, but it does care about anything that's going to affect our survival, especially threats and where are my people, where are my important attachment figures. In the right hemisphere, our sense of self and other are really interconnected. We don't have in the right brain a unique sense of self, um, but the right brain, here's the deal, is the host of our negative withdrawal emotions. It's vulnerable. It's constantly uh, capable of, in the blink of a moment, uh, activating panic attacks and anxiety. And when the right hemisphere becomes dominant, we wind up depressed. In fact, when people have major depressive disorders, you look at fMRI scans, you invariably see that their right brains are dominant. The right brain doesn't actually secrete many reward neurotransmitters. It secretes 
primarily in, and has uh, upregulation of serotonin and norepinephrine, which regulate emotions but don't actually reward us. It's the left hemisphere, the area of the brain that represents life and inner thought, uh, that has narrowly focused attention, that uh, has concepts of good and bad and the future. The right brain has no concept of the future. The left is constantly future-oriented. And our self is in the left brain established by what makes us unique. In the right brain, it's what links us with other people. There's no sense of a separate self in the right brain, but in the left, we're constantly worried about what sets me apart. How do I compare with other people? What is my identity? It's the hub of dopamine, the reward neurotransmitters that make us feel powerful, smart, sexy, and safe. And it's the hub of optimistic, positive emotions, when it gets too unregulated, it becomes manic. But it's not surprising then that self-improvement is so addictive because to inhibit the depressive, somber, pessimistic, anxious, worried uh, emotions of the right brain, the fastest way to activate the left hemisphere is with and start secreting those dopamine rewards is by visualizing some perfect future where everything will be rosy and where we won't have to, uh, we, where we'll be less subject to emotional uh, anxiety, disturbances, where we'll have it all figured out, where we'll be perfectly loved and all that so it's a we gravitate towards self-improvement because it's one of the most efficient ways for the left hemisphere to inhibit entirely the right brain and all of its concerns about uh you know things that are happening in the present that could go wrong uh so the dark side of self-improvement is what's called obsessive ideation, self-referential, future-oriented, speculative thought about things that I'm trying to get to that will make me improve better, more complete, lies at the very heart of what's called default mode operation. Default mode operation is the uh, when people no longer pay attention to what they're doing and when uh, we, uh, what's my call it, we uh, become fully uh, engrossed in thoughts about ourselves, how we compare to others, and what's going to happen to us in the future. It's uh, so verbose that according to the psychologist Rodney Corba's research, uh, when we're thinking about ourselves, internal dialogue has an equivalent rate of speech 
of 4,000 words per minute. Again, when we think about ourselves, inner speech occurs at 4,000 words per minute. That's 10 times the possible rate of the fastest verbal speech. And in fact, if, one, if we think about ourselves, this is astonishing, for a half an hour, we generate as many words in our mind as an entire novel, which on average have 80,000 words. Self-oriented inner chatter, which starts out warm and fuzzy with goals and plans eventually results in a compulsive rehashing of past disappointments and most importantly, worries about what will happen if we don't achieve what we've been planning. The Buddha has some wonderful uh, lessons or suttas as they are about this. And one, the Sabasava, he says, in fantasizing about a self of mind that will become perfect and not subject to change, one winds up in a wilderness of thoughts and opinions about oneself, burdened and bound by these thoughts, the run-of-the-mill individual experiences only more suffering. In the Loka Sutta, the Buddha says, the world is afflicted by uh, something like a disease of self-centeredness, fixating on our identity, we become obsessed with changing ourselves. We become obsessed with attaining a new sense of self, a new state. And this only causes more stress. The enlightened abandon these impulses. In 12-step AA literature, there's a famous quote about we are not bad people trying to become good, we are sick people trying to become well. But that's not what the Buddha would even say. The Buddha would say, if anything, we are not sick people trying to be well, nor good, nor bad people trying to become good. We are simply not trying to become anything. <laughs> We're simply practicing living in our life as it is here and now, based on kindness, harmlessness, appreciation of all that is present. Maslow, Abraham Maslow, the founder of positive psychology and the hierarchy of needs, noted that the highest state of being was someone who invests, invests their everyday activities and interactions with a sense of their being sacred. And in no way, Maslow said, plans or fixates on the future, simply enjoys and pays attention to the present, to the journey as it is now. So now you might have the understandable objections of, for example, should I give up on my goals? Should I not go to graduate school? And no, I'm not saying give up on any goals. 
plans for the future are fine. It's great to go back to skill, school to develop new goals. It's great to pick, take up meditation or go to the gym, but don't confuse the outcome with some magical state where everything will become easier, better, calmer, where we'll some, somehow as a result become fully happy, satiated, content human beings. We can go to the gym to feel healthier, but not to attain, you know, the fantasies of what a perfected body might bring. In fact, it's very unlikely that most of us would even attain a body that's in the ideal because most of the ideal images of bodies are simply not attainable. If we're single and we meet someone that's kind, fun, and attractive, that's great. We enjoy the process of getting to know them, but we don't, if we're smart, allow ourselves to fantasize about what it would be like marrying them or moving in with them or traveling around the globe with them, because that leads to rumination. And then pretty soon that rumination will no longer be pleasant fantasies about the future. It will, in fact, be concerns about why didn't they return my text or what did they mean when they said hey what's going on so rumination fantasizing planning about you know or hoping to attain some state of self-improvement almost invariably backfires now you, you might understandably object again well you're a buddhist pastor Hasn't your life gotten significantly better and happier as a result of, you know, the quarter of a century dedicated meditation? And I would say my life unquestionably has gotten better. I'm in unquestionably happier. But if that was my intention, <laughs> if my intention was at the outset, I'm going to become a better Josh. I'm going to become a more spiritual Josh. I'm going to become a more uh, 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 I don't know what Josh, but a better Josh. Nothing, nothing would have accrued. In fact, the results of my I would say happiness is has nothing to do with being empowered to be a Buddhist pastor, has nothing to do at all whatsoever with writing the book, writing the now hundreds of articles and, uh, and all that, it has nothing to do. I've never gotten a shred of lift in my baseline happiness because of that. What I have is because as a byproduct, of connecting myself in a fulfilling way with people. But it was never, if that was the intention, that Josh has to become different, better, uh, something other than who he is, then I would not have achieved any bump. So a Ajahn Brahm, one of the great Buddhist um, 
teachers. He's one of the funniest teachers I've ever had the joy of sitting with and uh, connecting with and chatting with. And uh, he gave a wonderful talk on the grass is always greener on the other side. And he, he tells this wonderful anecdote about he was teaching in a small village in Thailand. And for a very long time, all of the individuals he met one-on-one -on -one with who sought to, because in Thailand, they're very, very Buddhist and they all want to connect with a Buddhist renunciate. And when he would meet with people, he said that in this little village, the chief complaint he heard was that uh, from different people, I'm not married, I haven't found the right partner, <laughs> I'm all alone, I'm lonely, I just want to be with the perfect companion. Then Brahm became uh, invited to teach in Perth, Sydney, Australia, and he started up a, a wonderful sangha there that's uh, now very, very uh, large and has a huge following. So he wound up teaching there for 10 years. And then he was invited back to the old village that he had left 10 years previously. And he went and he met with all the people he met previously. And now each and every one of them had different complaints. They were now all married. And they all said, I can't stand it. I have no time to myself. My partner is irritating. I wish I had some peace and could get away from this person, I wish I, you know, and so forth. And Brahm uses that anecdote as a, as a kind of a learning lesson to point out the futility of the idea of when I get somewhere in the future, I'll have a better state of being that will somehow remove the aging, sickness, death, especially the sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, the irritation. This idea that I have to wait to, for some period in the future when I'm allowed to be happy is ludicrous. In the Irana Sutta, the Buddha says those, he was asked, the Buddha was asked in the Sutta, the people who live with you, in the forest, they only eat one meal a day, yet they're so peaceful, calm, and content. How is that even possible? And the Buddha said, well, those who follow my teachings don't dwell on the past, and they especially have no longings for the future. They live in the present alone, which is entirely sufficient for them. That's why they're so content. Without longing for the future, Ignorance and suffering is cut down like a tender reed. Tender reed, like a reed, a stalk. So um, it's really tempting right now in the midst of pandemic, amidst all the social distancing and all of the inconveniences that have accrued during the rise of a novel pathogen that has claimed something like 5 million lives and has wrecked havoc uh, around the world, it's tempting to crave some future time when everything will be okay, where we'll have a different state of being. But uh, this is entirely in contrast to 
the spiritual life, which always is oriented to addressing with kindness, appreciation, patience, uh, and awareness about what is happening in my life right now. And where can I orient towards feelings of safety and, uh, and appreciation? Where can I rest my mind right now that feels settled? Where right now can I find joy? How can I reorient from uh, the brain's negativity bias, which always wants me to pay attention to the difficult, unresolved issues, and how can I reorient my attention back towards all that's available to me? In the Dharma, peace of mind is always unconditionally available right here and right now. At heart, it's where do we focus our attention? If you ever want to check out a really great, funny talk, David Foster Wallace gave a wonderful commencement speech at Kenyon, probably must have been about 15, 18 years ago before he died. But it's all about this very topic where he talks about how the way out is learning to reorient one's attention away from uh, this idea of how can I improve the situation I'm in? How can I become better? What can I do that will make my life better or improved? And in fact, all that he says gives birth to this sense that everybody is in my way and that the key is learning to every moment of life orient towards where there's peace and stability. So rather than set New Year's resolutions, which are always goal-oriented and always based on some sense that if I do them, I will somehow become more spiritual, more perfect, better, uh, life will become easier. Buddhists instead set intentions which cannot be ever fully achieved, nor can they be measured, nor is perfection possible, nor is there anyone, any way that we can acknowledge how far we're doing it, where there's any sense of even achievement. One doesn't try to become perfectly kind or grateful or appreciative or connected with a friend any more than one tries to become the perfect gardener. Foundational to Buddhist intention settings are two principal uh, concerns which we'll be doing. The first is um, uh, taking the precepts of not causing harm to other beings through violence, theft, hateful speech, sexuality, or intoxication. And the other is taking refuge in three sources of present time, unconditionally available sources of ease and comfort. There's no future orientation in any of the refuges. They're always, always available right now. The first is the refuge of the Buddha, which means holding in our mind an image of any individual or figure that incarnates for us the, uh, uh, the attributes 
that of kindness, uh, acceptance, appreciation, all of the qualities that a mother bestows to an infant or baby that she loves, the unconditional, appreciative, uh, loving figure. In, it's interesting that in uh, theistic religions, God is described as always being by one side, a foundation of strength, all of which is characteristic in attachment theory of a secure base. And it's interesting that in clinical studies where people hold images of figures that exemplify uh, kindness, care, appreciation, soothing, the moment we activate this, there's almost immediate shifts in the levels of serotonin and norepinephrine and oxytocin and so forth. So what we're doing in this ancient practice is simply holding in mind not some distant future-oriented goal of who we want to become, but actually something that just embodies all of the attributes we can express right now. The second refuge is in spiritual wisdom, which is, uh, according to Robert Emmons, a great psychologist, we have the capacity to uh, experience what's called ego transcendence, which is not self-improvement, by the way, it's just transcending our attachment to our thoughts about ourselves by orienting towards what he calls ultimate concerns. We can reflect on uh, what practices in the past have brought me peace. What people do I associate with peace? What places? Or uh, reflecting on our generosity and kindness. But the most meaningful exercises I find is the Buddhist teaching on Maranasati. Maranasati is the daily practice in Buddhism of reflecting on the truths of existence. The first noble truths of I am of the nature to age, become sick, die, be separated from what is loved. All that I truly own are the results of my actions my karma. When we reflect on our present ongoing lack of guarantees, the unreliability of life, paradoxically, suddenly all of the choices we face and the, the life that we live right now suddenly becomes so miraculous, so fulfilling. There's no longer a need to become anything in the future. There's no, there, when we really practice awareness of our vulnerability, our lack of any guarantees, we turn towards our present and we see it in all the enriched, fulfilling fullness, the uniqueness of each moment. And no longer is there any concern about uh, what will happen in the future. It's fascinating. Those of my friends that do a lot of uh, ceremony work, plant work, plant medicine, um, when 
they are in these rituals, the present becomes so immersive and so wondrous and so complete that there's never any thought of what's going to happen in the future. And that immersive joy is, ne is by necessity a result of letting go of these futures that we constantly orient our actions towards. In uh, the practice of Buddhist chaplaincy and working in hospices, one of the things we would do uh, is encourage people to write a final statement, which um, is essentially, what would you say if this was the last utterance you could say to anyone ever again? And when people do that, it's never dark. It's always about appreciating and dropping into and living in each moment with this sense of immersion and completeness. No one ever says, I wished I lived my life with more goals, with more uh, resolutions for the future. And finally, we take refuge in the Sangha rather than living in competition with others where we are isolated selves. We turn towards those people in our life with appreciation and, and kindness and compassion. And uh, as the Buddha said, connection with wise friends is the entirety of the path. So we're just going to have a brief set where we reflect on some of these themes, and then we're going to take the uh, ceremony, the 2005-year-old intention-setting ceremony, which has been practiced since the onset of the Dharma. And if you, you, don't, if you don't want to take any of the precepts, that's fine. You can just listen along. So, but let's first get a little quiet and just connect with what's going on right here and right now. Our path is not self-improvements, it's self-acceptance. And from self-acceptance, change does happen, but not based on any sense that there's some future where there's a better me. Simply in connecting with our experience right now, appreciating the sensations of the body, 
appreciating the feelings that arise and pass appreciating the moods from the sadness and darkness born of loss to the times where the mind can be bright and joyous. Appreciating our ability to think in ways that can be beneficial, creative, our ability to escape the narrow self-centered concerns and understand the needs, concerns, and fears of others, the can develop altruistic endeavors. Appreciating the body that breathes and keeps us alive. Knowing that I am of the nature to grow old, to become sick, to die, to be separated from what I loved. Knowing that the only thing I really own are the quality of my actions. Are they harmful or harmless? knowing that each moment this could be my last breath. What would be my what would I want to let 
myself know looking back on my life if i could encounter my younger self some 20 or 30 years ago what would i tell that self it might be don't worry so much don't work so hard don't for some of us it might be don't get married to that person or don't get caught up in that job. If this was my final thought that I could think, what would it be? bringing to mind now people that embody the highest sense of compassion and care, kindness, wisdom, just holding them in mind, taking refuge 
in the Buddha and in the Sangha. And now, while keeping our eyes closed, I'll lead us through the refuges and the precepts. If you don't want to take them, that's fine. Just listen. You can whisper along with the English words or repeat them if you like, or just Hold them in your mind. So it starts with Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samasambuddhasa Buddham Daman Sangam Namachami, which is just paying heed and honoring the teachings of the Buddha. And then Buddham Saranam Gachami, I take refuge in the Buddha. Dhamman Saranam Gachami, I take refuge in the Dharma. Sangam Saranam Gachami, I take refuge in the Sangha. Dutyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami, for a second time I take refuge in the Buddha. Dutyampi Dhamman Saranam Gachami. For a second time, I take refuge in the Dharma. Dutyampi Sangan Saranam Gachami. For a second time, I take refuge in the Sangha, the wise spiritual community. Tatyampi Buddhan Saranam Gachami. For a third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. Tatiampi Dhamman Saranam Gachami. For a third time, I take refuge in the Dharma. Tatiampi Sangan Saranam Gachami. For a third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. And now, knowing how deeply our lives are connected. I undertake the five precepts. The first, I undertake a commitment to protect not to protect life, to not kill. I undertake the commitment to protect life, to not kill. Just reflect on what that would mean if there's anything that in our current life right now we would address. The second precept, I undertake the commitment to refrain from taking that which isn't offered not just stealing, 
but in any way claiming that which isn't ours, including the need to claim attention from those just to bring rather than seek to get from our interactions. I undertake the commitment to refrain from taking that which isn't offered. Third, I undertake the commitment to refrain from causing harm through any form of sexuality. This is not just obviously refraining from coercive sex or sex through violence or harmful sex, but also any form of misleading. endeavors in sex where we manipulate anyone for our pleasure. I undertake the commitment to refrain from causing harm through any forms of sexuality, honoring our commitments and not in any way compromising the bonds and attachments of others. The fourth, I undertake the commitment to speak truthfully without the intention to cause harm. This is not an intention to uh, always confront people with the brutal truth, but simply not to knowingly mislead for our own benefit, nor to rely on lying as a way to avoid or manage conflict. This involves reflection and using all of our wisdom and how can we interact with people without relying on harmful or untruthful speech. I undertake the commitment to speak truthfully without any intention to cause harm. And for those of you who want to take the fifth precept, I undertake the commitment from refraining from consuming intoxicants to the point of heedlessness or unskillfulness. And for those of you who'd like to take a commitment to sobriety, it would simply be, I undertake the commitment to refrain from consuming intoxicants. This is a commitment to not cause harm through our, to ourselves or others. And so I'd like to invite you to open your eyes.
And in the background, there's the sound of fireworks and people yelling and chanting because here on the East Coast, it is now a new year, 2022. Never thought I'd get to this <laughs> vaunted age. It's so lovely to see you all. And Kathy, Kathy's here with me. And we have our... Uh, our alarm clock. We have some non-alcoholic uh, toast. Toast, sparkling white tea. That's what it's come to. If you, any of you have anything you'd like to drink, this is great stuff, by the way. But I'm not a salesman. I don't get any profit participation. <laughs> so, if you'd like to. Support our work. You can just Venmo Dharma Punks with an X NYC and just.